Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Do you ever have one of those days where you just get, like, a crazy craving, and you just can't get it out of your head? Yeah, I've had those days. So What was yours? Today. Well, and, I like, I get to work. I'd already had breakfast. But I'm sitting there. And you think, and all of a sudden, I'm just like octopus brain. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. No, I no, I was just absolutely needing to eat a breakfast burrito. <gasps> we had those for dinner. Well, yeah, and, and they're that's because no, they're brilliant. Tonight, they're awesome. just tonight. What is the coincidence that you would have a craving for the thing that we ate? Maybe we're somehow connected. I think so. That must be it. Psychic well, so so I went connection. on. I went on thinking about these burritos all day long, and at lunchtime. I had to find a place. Like I was just, I was desperately searching for a place that that actually still was selling their breakfast burritos at lunchtime because a lot of the places stopped selling them because a gentleman, breakfast. a gentleman does not does not burrito <laughs> right. after after the morning. And so I I, I found a a great place that's actually uh, all burritos all the time, which was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I could guarantee that they would have what I was craving. And uh, and so I went and I got two burritos because I just was having that much of a craving and and so I I pounded one down for lunch and then uh, and then I started eating the other half and then I saved the rest of it and I finished that one for dinner and it was just like a perfect day of breakfast burritos. Wow! One of those weird things. Wow, I love that and I find it a little odd given where you live that you don't eat more of the burrito breakfast or otherwise. Oh, I eat plenty of them. Do you? <laughs> I do. All right. Well, I it's, guess it's that's... great to have it's great to have breakfast burritos. Like they're a great breakfast for set because you can cut them in half and everyone can just kind of grab one and walk <laughs> and work while they're eating a breakfast burrito. It's perfect. A breakfast for working on set of like a film. Is that yes. what you mean? That's not what I heard. <laughs> what did you hear? <laughs> I heard it was breakfast for something else. Oh. <laughs> you want to tell the people where we're from? <laughs> Where are we from? Hey, everybody. <laughs> I think my voice just broke. Hey, everybody. This is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies tonight on the show. The first in our mystery series with Stephen Gagan's 2005 petroleum thriller, Syriana. Before we get into that, though, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're interested in the study of the Instagramification of the lower middle class American teen, you'll want to follow the inspiring work of our authors at Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play the Instagram hashtag pony prize, hashtag academics are hot, hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, <laughs> how did we do against the fold this week? This was a, uh, it was a good week. I mean, uh, you know. Good old Stephen Smart pulled a uh, 1958 uh, Western from Anthony Mann out of his hat. Uh, Man of the West, which uh, I hadn't seen before. And uh, it certainly 
threw a lot of speculation out there, and it took, uh, I think it was day, was it day four that somebody finally got it, and I believe that person was Soda Pop Rocker. Soda Pop Rocker, uh, somehow, the uh, image of the train pulling up to the little water tower... He because there has never been another film with trains <laughs> and water <Western>. towers <laughs> and pulling up in the West. Exactly. And so, yes, yeah, Soda Pop Rocker. That is so good. I know. How does that happen? Uh, it's like Cameron Ryan yeah, with, with these, architecture. You know, like, yeah, like uh, The Firm. That's the house <laughs> that Tom Cruise was from. How on earth? Uh, so, anyway. <laughs> Congratulations, Soda Pop Rocker. You are entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. That is awesome. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Mine is called Faults. And uh, Riley Stearns is directing it. I've never heard of Riley Stearns, but this film looks really interesting. It looks like a just a really funny dark psychological thriller sort of film um i really love what they're doing with it it's it's been kind of a, a festival film playing all year it opened at south by southwest last march and it's been kind of slowly playing around the world at different festivals um and it's going to be opening march 6th uh this year i don't know it seems like maybe it's a limited release type of film but i don't know all i know is it looks really, really interesting. Leland Orser, who um, I think he kind of came to fame as the the guy who was uh, uh, subject to one of um, John Doe's uh, tortures in Seven. Yes, He's, he, yes he and was. ever since then. Uh, we talked about him in Seven and in, in uh, Alien Resurrection because he's just became known as this guy who could scream really well and had like great panics. And, and he does it so well in every film that he does it in. He's always so fun to watch. <laughs> uh, but this is like, I, I don't I'm sure he's played bigger roles in some other films and stuff. But this is like a, a lead role carrying this film. And it's exciting for me to see him. Um, playing this this guy who basically debunks um, these cult groups, and uh, he he's hired by this girl's parents because they fear that her daughter has been brainwashed by this religious cult, and they basically hire him to kidnap their daughter and and deprogram her and go through this whole process of deprogramming. And from the trailer, it looks like uh, you know it looks like frightening things happen. It looks like crazy and wild things happen it just looks insane um mary elizabeth winstead is the uh, daughter who is uh, sucked into this cult and i don't know the trailer had me uh laughing at a lot of it and also just kind of cringing at some of the uh the crazy places where i'm expecting it to go so i don't know what it's going to be like but i'm quite looking forward to this one me too i i can't remember did we see lance reddick in the trailer I don't think so. I mean, it's funny that he's like he gets some some pretty high billing in this thing, and yet I don't feel like I even saw him in the trailer. No, I don't. I really don't think he pops up in the trailer at all. Uh, he's another John, one of those actors. Yeah, you see John Grease in the trailer. Yep, yep. yep. And uh, Beth Grant. Yep, Beth Grant's um, mother. She uh, the talk about a fantastic character actress. 
oh, yeah. uh, who's everywhere. Uh, anyway, I am also very excited about this film. I think it it looks really really interesting. I hadn't seen it until you sent me the trailer to check out, and I uh, I'm I'm definitely in that last sequence where, oh, man, the the slow pull out while he's beating somebody behind the mattress is <laughs> with his book with his book <laughs> with his own book. Uh, that's pretty intense. There's some pretty intense stuff in there. I'm look, really looking forward to it. I think it looks great. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead is always charming, but charming and, and you know, clearly uh, a little bit uh, off her rocker in this film. She she comes across as deeply intense. She comes across as, you know, that, Mar- um, uh, was it Martha Marcy, May Marlene sort of character? Mm-hmm. Like, she, she comes across pulling that off quite well, this sort of same crazy cult belief uh that i mean she plays it pretty pretty spectacularly i think in this and i'm looking forward to seeing how she carries it through the whole film absolutely agree very much looking forward to it uh when does it come out did you say march 6th excellent Mm -hmm. coming right up i know uh my trailer this week is another remake I feel like I'm doing a public service, uh, bringing these to the surface of our cinema conscience week after week, since it would appear there no isn't, one, there's clearly not enough ad money on the budget to do it without and no me. one else would ever hear about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Uh, the Man from Uncle is coming back after a 50-year hiatus of its TV run, this time adapted and directed by Guy Ritchie. Uncle stars Henry Cavill of Man of Steel fame and Army Hammer, the lovable Winklevi twins from The Social Network. Uh, along with uh, Alicia Vikander, Hugh Grant, and possibly even David Beckham. Dare to dream. Uh, looks gritty, <laughs> and, suave. What and do you don't think? Forget, don't forget the cannibal king, Hugh Grant, pops up in there also. That's what I said. I said Hugh Grant. Did you say Hugh Grant? I did oh, say I missed, Hugh Grant. I missed Hugh Grant. Yeah, okay. no, it's good to know that you listen to me, though. And Jared Harris? Did you say Jared Harris? Yeah, I said Jared. I'm sure I said Jared Harris. And I said everything else that you're about to say. <laughs> did you say David Beckham? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, you know, okay, here's the thing. I think uh, Henry Cavill looks so much more interesting in this role to me than he does as Superman. (laughs) Here, here. I could not agree more. (laughs) I am really thrilled to see him in something not quite so um, constrained. Yes. Talking about, yeah, it, I just really, I'm very much looking forward to this film. I do uh, love the films of the fine guy, Richie. I had an absolute blast with Sherlock Holmes, even the second one. And, of course, we can't uh, forget Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. Uh, after Uncle, he is also apparently taking on Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur, a full-on revisiting of the Lancelot story. So I feel like I'm in for a twofer with Richie films in 2015 and 16. So uh, Man from Uncle hits theaters in U.S. August 14th. What'd you think? It looks good. I agree with everything you said. I never, ever have seen this show, so I really have no expectations with it, um, which, you know, I think is probably good going into it. And, you know, Guy Ritchie is not one to hold back as far as feeling he needs to, um, you know, necessarily stick with the uh, uh, the original source material completely. Um, I was not as much a fan of the Sherlock Holmes films as you were, I still enjoyed them, but I also found them fairly forgettable. Um, but that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy them. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping this is one that I equally <laughs> just means enjoy. you don't remember the experience of enjoying them. <laughs> That's right. What was that <laughs> film again? <laughs> uh, well, I still think that, uh, I still am excited, about it, especially after our uh, our film board episode this week. Uh, you know, talking about Kingsman, I feel like we're in for it for for the uh, the British spy genre is coming back, and I'm excited about that. It's just nice suits. 
Just a, yes. it's just films about nice suits. Yes. Uh, so there we go. Excellent. Beirut rules, Mr. Nelson. Imagine thirty percent of America unable to heat their houses, or gasoline twenty dollars a gallon at the pump. It's running out, and ninety percent of what's left is in the Middle East. This is a fight to the death. I think we've got something that utilizes your specific skill set. His money's in a lot of dark corners. I want you to take him from his hotel, drug him, put him in the front of a car, and run a truck into him at 50 miles an hour. It's good to have you back in town, Bob. You want to know what the business world thinks of you? We think 100 years ago you were living out here in tents in the desert, chopping each other's heads off, and that's exactly where you're going to be in another 100. So, yes, on behalf of my firm, I accept your money. It is illegal to offer gifts, money, or anything of value to influence foreign officials. This is all business we're talking about, right? You've just visited what could be the most profitable corporation in America. Provided the government approves the merger. Provided there's still chaos in the Middle East. Do you understand what that means? It's like somebody put a giant ATM on our front lawn. Corruption? Corruption is our protection. Corruption keeps us safe and warm. Corruption is why we win coming out. Take the target out. Why am I being investigated? Why am I being investigated? Drop it. Four miles. Your entire career has been used. Two miles. Where'd that job come from? Goodbye, Bob. One mile. Siriana, Andrew. Siriana. Oh, yes. This uh, film came out in 2005, uh, written and directed by Stephen Gagan, uh, based on the book by Robert Baer, uh, former CIA intelligence operative who knows something about such things. Uh, and he's a scary dude. Do you have a chance to you watch any of the videos of him talking about this and talking about the making of the movie? I didn't. I didn't. But I, I always find it funny when somebody like from the CIA who's sworn to secrecy on all this sort of stuff <laughs> goes out and writes, writes a book. <laughs> well, but even then, it's like you listen to Steve Gagan talk about it, and it's just like he still tells him, tells that, you know, Bob Bear is he can't tell any of this stuff. Yeah. And here he is trying to, to, you know, uh, make amends for stuff that he's done in his past, but he can't tell it. But obviously he wrote a book about it. So what's, what's in the book? And I haven't read it. <laughs> I haven't read the it's book. It's like, it's like, I mean, he's obviously telling some things. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird, you know, weird place. <laughs> it is a weird place. I, you know, watching, it, it is funny. I think to your point, watching Stephen Gagan talk about Bob Bear, uh, it, it he it's a conversation watching Gagan dance around himself because you know he can't talk about certain things that he knows about um and uh so it's always a treat to watch them try to dance around this movie that they made which clearly talks about things that probably happened in some way shape or form um so it's uh it's scary now you you really enjoy this film yes if i recall you are on the record I am on the record. I love this film. You love this film. This is an official love oh, yes. film of yours. It is It is a love film. Well, I am very interested in hearing your love fest with this film. I, I don't love it. I don't hate it. Uh, but for me, you watch this film to get to the last 20 minutes. Everything leading up to the last 20 minutes is insufferably boring. Hmm. I have such a hard time, and until there are a couple of of isolated moments that are that I find are are really great, and the end of the film is quite satisfying. Uh, 
but this is a case. You know, one of the things we talked about in the um, the uh, what was the movie we just did? Uh, the Delicatessen? film board? No, film board. Oh, uh, Kingsman. Kingsman. One of the things we talked about in Kingsman was this idea of how efficient parallel storytelling structure can be. And this movie really does it. It's the big trifecta of parallel storing, uh, storytelling structure. We've got three major storylines happening at the same time. And, and I think it's, it, is, you know, it does its best to be efficient, but it, each storyline is complex. It's complex with lots of characters, lots of names, lots of faces, um, and uh, it requires a, a great degree of assimilation of events and it takes so much work that it's really it for me it's just exhausting to watch um with again with the exception of certain key elements i'm sure we'll talk about now what i do find interesting and i just want to get this out on the table i didn't watch this film uh the first time i saw it i didn't watch it in this light this time i really see this film as something of a story about fathers and sons Mm-hmm. And I never really got that before, but I got it this time. And that made the intent of the film and the emotional heart of the film much more interesting for me to reflect on. And so I'm excited to to hear about that. But the, the, just the general execution of the film, what I see on screen, I found really tough to get through, um, you know, apart from the uh, ultimately satisfying climax. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. Do go interesting. on. Yes. No, I... I I don't know. This is a film that just really clicked with me when I watched it. I uh, I know that a lot of critics, um, a lot of people, not just the critics, found it very confusing and very kind of difficult to follow because you are, and I think it's actually like five storylines that we're following. I mean, there's quite a number of storylines that we're jumping uh, back and forth um, across as we're, uh, and fairly quickly as the story progresses. Um, we move from, I mean, geez, from, Tehran to Georgetown to Houston to Geneva to the Persian Gulf to uh, you know uh, Princeton uh, to Spain to where else do they end up? There's some France stuff in France. I mean, we're yeah. all over the world. I mean, right, right. This is, it's all over the place. Yeah, this is a film that they they shot this thing in like uh, um, what was it four continents, 220 locations in 75 days and in five languages. I mean, it's just, it's an insane, uh, it's an insane production. As a, as to, a producer, as a producer, yeah. is that like the brass ring of jobs for you? Well, it certainly you... looks frightening. <laughs> like that, that just is incredibly daunting looking at that. It's like, hmm, wow. That, uh, just, let's, let's see if we can what find would, a way what, to what would that, that spreadsheet, out a bit. What would that spreadsheet look like, Andy? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I, just even the conversions between all the different countries as you're traveling seems crazy. But, you know, it's I, I think it was important for this film because this is a film that is talking about um, really kind of just like the, the oil trade in uh, in and around the world and uh, just kind of the en- energy industry, not just those who are drilling it, but those who are, are uh, you know, buying it and those who are the, the political side of it the people who work in it, the people who analyze it. You get all these different aspects of it and how it all ties together. And it, it comes, it ends up coming across as this, uh, I mean, yes, I, I think that the story is a little complicated, although uh, I don't think the intention was necessarily to um, to try making it transparent for audiences. I actually think that the the complicated story, the nature of it, is an integral part of the actual story because 
this is a fairly complicated web in the world of how all of this stuff is interrelated and decisions get made for reasons that aren't necessarily the right ones, but it's because of a, a certain um, poli- political issue that somebody uh, is dealing with or because of a certain thing, you know, like the, the whole issue with um, getting the new emir in place. And and he agrees. His The, the brother, who is the rightful heir, um, the prince, he ends up... Um, not getting it because he is the one who um, wants to have progressive reform and wants to kind of change the direction of the country, but that's not what the United States wants. And so they back the younger brother. And there's just like all these different elements working together. And so I end up watching this film and I end up completely engrossed the whole time. I find all the plot uh, elements very interesting. I love the the way that they tie together. I love the way that, that uh, Stephen Gagan and his uh, his editor uh, Tim Squires really worked together to cut back and forth uh, through all of these different stories in a fairly complex way. The transitions from one to the next are are um, I mean they're pretty fast paced. It moves quickly. You don't necessarily get long scenes ever as you're as you're um, in one place for a brief time just to get enough information before you jump around the world to this other location to get more information and and yet remarkably they do make it feel like they're much much longer well the the (laughs) scenes you mean well that was me being sarcastic i was being sarcastic for somebody who's bored by it i guess yeah and and again maybe it's just because i i really get engrossed in this story and i love the storytelling style of it i mean that i you know gagan uh, wrote traffic for steven soderbergh and i think that was a masterful film as well and also one that jumped around a lot between different stories. This one takes it even a step further, I think. And um, I, I don't know. I just I felt Gagan uh, really became a master at this type of storytelling. And I, you're right. I know it's not necessarily a story for everybody. It does get very complicated because of that. I think some people can can kind of their interest can wane as they are just kind of giving up on. I don't even know why I'm in this part of this world right now. How does this tie into anything that I've been seeing? When you're jumping around that fast, you're not necessarily giving your audience a lot of time to really connect with particular characters so that they can be drawn into the story in a stronger way, which I think is a, an important uh, tool in, in telling a story and, and writing a script and making a film. You want to be able to get your audiences to identify with characters. And when you're doing it um, in such brief um, pieces, it can make that challenging. I think it can make it challenging. I think the the other issue uh, may have to do with casting in, in some respects, right? The the main characters that we follow uh, in this film, and there are a lot of, of, you know, really A-line characters here. We've got, I mean, George Clooney, obviously, Christopher Plummer, Jeffrey Wright, Chris Cooper, Matt Damon. Uh, these are the, the main sort of characters that you, you sort of key on, right? These are the characters that you latch on to because you're more likely to know them. Uh, and they are sort of awash in so many other faces that are also important. And because of that, I find shifting, you know, I, I find, I, I feel like I'm supposed to follow the the big names, but in many cases, I'm not. 
I'm supposed to follow somebody else. I'm supposed to follow, you know, the, I, I think, sublimely talented uh, Alexander Siddig, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, I think he's just really, really good. But he's, you know, he's not the movie star. Um, but he has one of the more interesting, uh, you know, interesting sort of familial political uh, storylines in this thing. And so it, it it's sort of a wash in sort of weird, I don't know who to follow casting. Now, your point about traffic is is well taken, although I thought that was just a better movie. Uh, and and I, I enjoyed it. I followed it. I felt like I was interested in, in, you know, where it was going. I didn't have any of this trouble with the characters. I, I feel like I enjoyed it for all the reasons that I really wanted to enjoy this one. Um, well, and, and something with traffic that I think works and doesn't work in relation to this film is that that traffic looks at the different stories but they don't necessarily um tie together as directly this one ties these stories the five stories much more directly whereas traffic i believe is only three stories they're they're all related to the same topic kind of the drug industry uh, uh but they aren't necessarily uh one story affecting the other story Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so no, I can see so, that. So it becomes easier to kind of, okay, I can get into Michael Douglas's story as the senator and his and dealing with his his uh, daughter who's an addict, uh, because it's a fairly straightforward story. Likewise with Benicio del Toro as as he's uh, trying to figure out how to do what's right as a as a cop from Mexico. Yeah, yeah. E- each of the stories is it's just a fairly straightforward f- straightforward story. <laughs> Are you sure? I, I, <laughs> my speaking clearly isn't straightforward. <laughs> but it, this it is one, a straightforward story, but this one I think gets to your point, which is you know, when do you know when when are you pushing it, you know, a, a little bit too far? That you structurally, yeah, no. as you're writing the script, when are you pushing it a little too far? Now, to to the the film's uh, credit, they had to make some very difficult choices. I know about introducing complexity and knowing when to to rein it in, just because of the complexity of the story. This is an incredibly complex issue, and in fact, in order to really play it out, you really have to introduce and and flesh out all these parties. You have to know about the the merger of these two oil companies. You have to know about the legal team that is assigned to both. Uh, defend and grease the skids for uh, the Department of Justice go to to approve this thing. You have to know about the CIA operatives that are working on uh, working, you know, in in Beirut. You have to know about all of the elements that are coming together. I, I, obviously, you have to know about the legal and economic advisors around the um, you know the Emir and the the royalty in the local land. I, I get it. You have to know all of that stuff. Uh, it, it makes it just for a very demanding film. And it's one that I, I absolutely appreciate the the um, the artistry that goes into it. It's not one that I reach for when I want to really enjoy, uh, you know, kind of enjoy a film. Sure, sure. No, and I can totally understand why some people would have a hard time with that because it is complex. And it's just, and I'm not saying, you know, people who don't enjoy this can't appreciate complex stories. Yeah, because it's, com- not- it's when it's complex versus complex and messy. And, well, and to me, and see, it's I don't- messy. And see, I don't feel it's messy. And maybe it's just because I click with the story. And I think I'm going to just give a lot of the weight of my appreciation of this film to that in the fact that I really appreciate the way that this story was told. I 
really love everything about the script and love how it moves. I love the characters. I love the interactions. I love the casting. I love uh, just, I mean, really, I just think everything was spot on perfect. For me, I think it all works really well for what I was wanting to get out of this film. And uh, it, it just, it really stands up. And every time I watch it, I'm just completely engrossed in every element of it. I love uh, all these different characters as they move through it. The, the, and, and something that you brought up earlier, the nature of the, uh, the fathers and sons, I think is a very interesting aspect to this story. And particularly the way that some of the tragic moments play out between the fathers and sons. And, uh, and that is something that uh, that I hadn't even really noticed uh, before this viewing either. So it's it's definitely something that I think can stand up as a film that you can find little things uh, on repeat viewings. In fact, I think this is a film that repeat viewings actually help because the first viewing can be a little complicated trying to figure out, wait a minute, what, what's going on with this, with Connex Colleen and yeah, how are they yeah. tied into this thing here? Yeah. Well, I think I'm a, I am certainly a testament to that. I mean, the fact that I, I even have this extra layer, like you say, of the father-son issue is, is, um, uh, is a testament to that. I do, in, I do enjoy that. And I think there's, uh, there, it's, there are layers, <laughs> there are layers within, uh, each of the parallel stories. Let's talk a little bit about the father-son stuff. Um, uh, we get we get a view of um, you know I think three generations uh, or three parallel generations of fathers. The first one is is Matt Damon um, is the well he's an attorney. He's an no he's, he's an energy, the, energy yeah energy analyst and he ends up getting a, the opportunity of a lifetime uh, to uh, go to a party at the Amir's place. And while he's there with his family, uh, his wife played by the wonderful Amanda Peet. Thank goodness. She was in this film. She is like the emotional anchor of this film, mm-hmm. this grieving mother. Uh, while they're at this party, um, the oldest of uh, Brian Woodman and Julie Woodman's sons uh, jumps into a pool. And the pool, underneath the water, there's a broken light. And so the water is electrified. And as soon as the ch- the son jumps into the water, he's electrified and killed. Um, and so that it, it is horrifying. It is really horrible, particularly, and I think for you and me both, we have sons of that sort of age, like young yeah. and, and innocent. And it it really is. It, that's tough to watch as they, as they go through the rescue and sort of grieving process. Um, and so we watch the youngest sort of the newest life just snuffed out. And mm-hmm. almost immediately we see there's a monetary value on that, which is $75 million. And there's a wonderful exchange in the desert where um, the emir and Matt Damon are, or the prince and, and Matt Damon are, are talking. And, and this comes out that, yes, you know, we're going to give your, your company uh, rights to this land uh, at the price of $75 million. And, and it's clear that that was, it, it becomes clear that that was uh, essentially a... Um, what would you call Re- that? reparations, reparations. For, yeah. for the loss of their son? Right. Yeah. And and they're going to uh, raise the the house where they were having their party and turn it into a park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it, it's a, that is a a fairly gruesome um, sort of snuffing out of the value of family. And then we see the the next. Well, one, and, and also just just in relation to that, I find it interesting how. Um, as the energy analyst, I don't think Matt Damon, I mean, yes, he analyzed kind of the energy um, uh, situations going on in the world, but I don't think he was quite as willing to be so blunt 
before the death of his son. Right. And I, th- I felt that was a very interesting switch in his character after his son had died. And as, as the prince, uh, Prince Nasir, would ask him these questions about, well, what would you do and stuff? I, I found it so interesting how, how um, uh, Matt Damon, as Brian Woodman, just became so blunt with his answers. And really just saying, you know, laying it all out there as to this is it. And I found that so refreshing because normally there was so much uh, politicking that you would get in situations like that. And this was just a guy just laying it out there, just saying, no, this is this is what it is. And this is why you're always going to be stuck in the same situation you are, because this is what you're doing. And you're not you're too blind to the fact that uh, that uh, this is what's happening and you're not ever going to get out of it. I I have a a dear friend who lost a young son some years ago and I I had this very conversation with him not long ago, and it all boils down to at least his his reflection was you know you're not when you when you've lost a child like that, um, you you realize that you've experienced the most tragic form of of loss and pain that you could experience. Like that's the that is the the very worst thing, and as you recover from that, his words, uh, you lose all fear of speaking truth to power because what else could you possibly take away from me? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, I agree with you. I thought Matt Damon's portrayal of that emotional twist was for me, especially having this, had this sort of relationship with my friend, um, was right on. He just, he just nailed it. I, I think you're absolutely right. He was, he was not only was he never, uh, he, he, did he never shy away from saying what he needed to say the way he said it with such, uh, he, such shock, uh, every, you know, he was never afraid to say something as if it was as stupid as he heard it. <laughs> you want to know why yeah. you're stuck in this position? Because you're a dumbass. That's why. <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, that's what I kept hearing as he opened his mouth. And I thought it was just great. I think his, I, Matt Damon, I really enjoyed um, uh, watching him. And, and I think all the, everybody in this film did, a, did an admirable job. I, very believable. Oh, yeah. What about um, uh, Clooney? He was, uh, I he was, he was a little, little plump around the middle. He put on some yeah. weight. He put on some weight. He, uh, you know, he won an Oscar for this. He did a good job with his yeah. uh, performance here. This was, and, and speaking of what we were just talking about, also another father-son relationship. This is exactly. one where he's really lost his relationship with his son. Uh, and did you recognize who was playing his son, by the way? Oh, no. Who was, was playing uh, his son? It was Max Langella, who's uh, also, is going back to... Uh, yeah. Uh, social network, he popped up there. That's so. right. How funny! I didn't even make that connection. Nice. Yeah, he, he um, uh, Clooney and and his wife are both in the CIA as as operatives, and they can't tell their son anything. And it's really, I mean, that is just honestly, I don't know how a parent could ever put themselves in a situation where they actually are a spy and they just have to basically, as as uh, Clooney's son says, you know, you, both my parents are professional liars because they won't tell him anything. And I just don't know how any parent could put themselves into that situation where they always are going to have to lie to their own children. It's just, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And you can see how this life has really worn on Clooney. It's a very, just uh, just a brutal life. And if anyone is really kind of playing the Bob Bear character, it's probably Clooney. Oh, yeah. And just kind of the stuff that he's getting involved in, uh, kind of the uh, the dark stuff going, you know, to meet with the Hezbollah, the head of Hezbollah. And, and 
I don't know. I really enjoyed him in this film. I felt he brought a uh, a very world weary, uh, but smart thinking sort of spy power to it. Um, I, I really, I really actually uh, just enjoyed him completely in this film. He reminded me a lot of uh, uh, his character in particular. Um, reminded me a lot of Richard Burton's character from The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Another spy who is very just kind of worn down with the the realities of the uh, this spy world that they have to work in and how brutal it is. So the the loss in this case is actually the inverse, where we have the son who has um, who the father and son whose relationship is clearly broken because essentially the the son is feels as if he is forsaken uh, through a lack of just fundamental human honesty uh, and what that does to a family, what how that breaks a family, and and whereas we see the you know uh, Matt Damon's family is just torn apart because this his young son is taken away in this case the son's father is taken away as Clooney is um is uh uh killed in the in the explosion at the end of the film as he is trying to um to find some penance i think to stop mm-hmm. this thing this horrible thing that's going to happen and he is just too late and he is you know even as he's trying to do the right thing uh he is taken out of out of his family's life which is the the sort of the inverse of of what we expect, but no less painful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then we have the uh, the uh, relationship between Jeffrey Wright and William Charles Mitchell, uh, the the attorney. Right, Jeffrey what's your, Wright. What's does our take a, on this one? He does a great job. I, I you know he is always this just very quiet sort of character. I'm waiting for Jeffrey Wright to to play a role where he is just a wild and crazy guy. Right. Because, because even, I mean, he brought the same gravitas to, uh, to, um, uh, James, James Bond. Bond character. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, you know, he's, he's just, uh, and I mean, geez, and if the you, Hunger uh, games. And... Yeah. And, yeah. He's just always is kind of <laughs> very, very, uh, quiet, uh, you know, and Felix lighter. I mean, geez, in, in, and back in the Timothy Dalton days was getting married and jumping out of airplanes. So it's, he's very, he, he takes everything into this very serious place, which I, I mean, it works really well in context here. I think there's that great line that uh, Christopher Plummer has with him where he's just like, you know, uh, you know, I, at my firm, I have a flock of sheep who think they're lions. Maybe you're a lion. Everyone thinks is a sheep. <laughs> exactly. Which, you which know, takes I, me right back to his performance as Colin Powell in W, you know, I mean, it was that same <laughs> sort of sense. Yeah, he uh, he does that really well here as this attorney who's working for these uh, this these oil companies as they try to merge. And there's, you know, as a character that you think you can kind of attach to because there's this interesting relationship he has with his father. His father is just basically a, a, a homeless drunk, really, and he has to kind of, he always ends up on his doorstep and and Jeffrey Wright has to take care of him, or he gets calls from bars that need him, uh, Jeffrey Wright, to come pick his father up. Um, there's this uh, interesting humanity to the character that I think lends a lot of power to writing a character like that. Because otherwise, this is a character that really you're probably not going to like very much, you know? He's this lawyer who basically is willing to, and is hired purposefully, to f- dig up dirt 
on uh, people in order to convince the, his, his government connections to let this merger go through. Not the sort of person that generally, you know, you like very much because, no. you know, it's, it's that lobbyist mentality that just, you know, you see it in, in House of Cards and you just, you just, it makes you so frustrated. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, to that point, though, I mean, it, one of the things I like so much about it is his rather contentious relationship with his boss, you know, Christopher Plummer, who's sort of the head of this firm, and it clearly has the deck stacked in his favor no matter who wins, right? No matter who comes out, it, their firm is going to be in great shape. And I think that's so much of what this film is a commentary of from the legal aspect is, is you know, even so much as Gagan says, I try not to have a moral objective when I do these films. Uh, there's a moral objective in the story he's telling about these mergers and acquisitions and the and the people who, who play the part. I mean, that's his, he's none too subtle about the adaptation of this work. Well, uh, I would say he's he's not really playing a political side, but certainly it, it does feel like he's sticking it to the corporate mentality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly my point. So in the end, I you know, I'm I'm left sort of considering Jeffrey Wright's performance as Bennett Holiday, which is, you know, of the three father son relationships, his is the one that where when the film ends, we're left on a note of hope. And there isn't a lot of hope in this film. No, no, there right? isn't. Of all of the sort of rescues, of all of the, what are you doing, old man? You know, the sort of contentious fights between him and his father. At the very end of the film, it's it's an open door, after all. You know, yeah. he lets his father into his house. And I think that is, you know, for me, that's a, that is part of, of what I love so much about the redemption of these last 20 minutes, is that we see all three of these stories play out we see matt damon returns home to his other son and his wife who who need him who have that hole in their lives we see uh the resolution of you know the broken family of george clooney and his work and what that has done as he is lost in the in the final assassination and we see the redemption that comes from jeffrey wright with his father and i really i i like that sort of that that um you know it's a the the trinity um, well, of those relationships. Yes, although you are leaving out two other father-son relationships. Yeah, I don't really care about any of the other ones, though. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I am, but I, I still like Trinity because how often do you say Trinity? Right. Exactly. Yeah, quintilogy. <laughs> it doesn't work yeah, quite as yeah. well. But yeah, I mean, Prince Nasir and his father. Yeah, obviously, right. there's a, there's an important relation. Well, and his younger brother. Uh, I can't remember what his name is, but the other prince. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting relationship going on there as the two sons are really kind of trying to play the father in order to get what they think is right. And the father ends up siding with the younger brother um, because it's going to be more beneficial for the for the for them as the country rather than the country in and of itself as far as what Prince Nasir wanted to do with the country. Yes. Yeah, and I do like that, and principally because of the performance of Alexander Siddig. I I just like him so much, uh, and and I liked him on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Who is he in Deep Space Nine? What? I well, he's the Doctor. I, I never really watched that oh, show, so please. <laughs> but he is great here. You're right. He brings a. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of these characters have this world weariness. Matt Damon certainly has it. George Clooney has it. I think Alexander Siddick definitely has it here as this prince who is really the one who can kind of see 
what needs to be done in order to make his country move in the right direction, even though it's not the direction that his father and his brother are going to take it. And it's very sad. And it leads to his execution at the end because of that, which is heartbreaking uh, that this is how uh, the mentalities think. And this is what the United States would go. This is the, the lengths they would go to in order to ensure their control over the oil rather than this country actually controlling its own oil. And then the other father-son story is is really kind of the tragic one of the the father with his young son, uh, the Pakistani uh, family, who are workers at the field, and how his son just is is frustrated with the situation that they're in, and ends up becoming a follower of this uh, terrorist group. And uh, although it doesn't seem terrorist initially, but they are just very um, very much more in line with following. Uh, the 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 preachings of Allah and all of that, but then he kind of ends up in this little sect that ends up kind of leading to the you know he ends up kind of going off in this terrorist route and and seeing that that is the way that he is uh, meant to go and it's a uh, you know his father seems very clueless as the few times that we see his father and it's a, it's again a very heartbreaking moment when that son comes and sees his father at that uh, soccer game and and goes and and gives him a hug because we know what's yeah. going to be happening even though his father doesn't and that last little wave that they give to each other it's just very sad you know all of the uh the these father son relationships do have quite a bit of tragedy to them i do uh i i love that last bit because you know you get the wisdom of the father which is you know we just need to play some soccer i know a lot i've been around a long time kind of a thing and i'm going to play some soccer now and you th- and and the converse is the ego of youth running off to to do something in the name of this of fundamentalism mm-hmm. uh and and the film is also an interesting commentary on the breadth of fundamentalism you know we have um it's pretty easy for us to talk about fundamentalism on this uh, you know f- from the perspective of terrorism uh it, you know we we can see that but what this film i think really shows is there is a great deal of fundamentalism, corporate fundamentalism at work. And when you see them on the same scale in a film like this, it, it, I think makes an interesting, uh, paints an interesting picture. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, they, they're the garbs, their, their symbolic garb is certainly different, but, um, uh, but don't we have some similar intent? So, it's the corporate fundamentalism. It, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it's scary. I think all the way around. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's it's interestingly sort of social uh, a sociological statement that I group the father son relationships as the sort of American domestic <laughs> father son relationships and the Middle Eastern father son relationships. Like my Trinity sort of stands as a group. That's how I see it in my head. And <laughs> I hadn't even gotten to the other two, which are which are you know easily um, you know as uh, tragic. Mm-hmm. So that's on me. Yep. That's I'm a, on you, I'm Ben. A, I'm a dope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that Alexander Siddig, he's, he's in uh, season five of Game of Thrones. Oh, is he really? Yes, he is. Man, I can't wait for Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, I need to. Uh, I can't wait to finally get to watch season four. <gasps> Soon. We still can't be Soon. friends. At least I'm at least I'm catching up. Come yeah, on. I know. Give me that. All right. Give me that. You can have it. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so shall we talk just uh, a little bit about uh, anything about uh, the uh, production? Do we have any more actors we want to talk about, or can we move on from that? Um, just this is one of those films that God, you look around and everybody. It's like, oh, hey, you have a day off. Hey, come be in our movie. You know, <laughs> I'm sure that's what it's like. Too. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was especially, yeah. Hey, come be in our movie. Fly all the way over here to to Morocco to yeah. be in our movie for a day. Like Viola Davis pops up in it. Mark Strong pops up in it. I just like, gosh, I, Mark Strong I, is crazy. Yeah, he is frightening in this. Oh. It's just, this is. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, pretty disturbed by by the big scene with him. It's uh, as as easy as it is to be. Yeah. So the big scene is uh, Clooney thinks that uh, Mark Strong's character is a is a thug on his side of the spy game, and uh, he actually tells Mark Strong, gives him an assignment to go, you know, take the Amir and drug him and put him in a car and wreck it. And uh, instead, it turns out Strong has has uh, changed sides, mm. and so Strong immediately goes out and hires three guys to go capture Clooney and take him and tape him all to a chair and then um, yell at him a little bit and pull out his fingernails and then punch him real hard in the face a bunch of times. And yeah, really, and I that, think I passed. I blacked out at the pulling out all the fingernails. That was that was <laughs> tough. That was really tough to watch. That was tough. Nobody does that to Batman. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, it was brutal. It, it was so brutal. It was so brutal. Which boy? I mean, he only got through like two two fingers, right? Two two yeah, two fingers, and then he started beating him up, and then he was going to cut his throat until the uh, until the the head of the Hezbollah comes yeah. in because uh, this was not a sanctioned attack. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh. yeah, that was a tough one. So that that was definitely a um, uh, a high point uh, in the film in terms of general pulling me out of my snooze. Well, good. That was a little rush. <laughs> A little rush. A uh, little bit, yeah. So that was Mark um, Strong. Yeah, w- Mark Strong. William Hurt pops up for a scene. Yes. Uh, uh, Tim Blake Nelson is in there as, uh, you know, a uh, uh, one of the Texan... Uh, I can't remember what he is. If he, He's like a political... Uh, somehow tied into the uh, political side of this merger and ends up being one of the uh, the scapegoats that they they pull in order to actually make this merger happen. Yes, yes. Uh, it's uh, uh, Jamie Sheridan is in it. Uh, it's just it's just one of those films where everybody seems to be in it, except Tom Hanks. This is uh, unfortunate. <laughs> and and actually, Harrison Ford was actually um, asked to be in it by Gagan, who wanted him to play. Um, I think he was going to have him play the Bob Barnes uh, role that uh, Clooney ended up playing. And uh, oddly enough, he uh, he turned it down and then it went to Clooney. And Harrison Ford had also, when Traffic was being made, he had been offered to play the Michael Douglas role. And he turned that one down as well. And uh, later, Harrison Ford ended up saying about this, he said, I didn't feel strongly enough about the truth of the material. And I think I made a mistake, which which I would agree with. Um, yeah. Because... Harrison Ford could stand to be in some good movies from time to time. Yeah, he had a kind of a string of troublesome is, films. Is still having yeah. a string yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since uh, since the late nineties. Perhaps has he been in a good film? <laughs> now, oh, I I really have a hard time thinking of many good Harrison Ford films recently. Really, do I, I do. have a hard time with that. I, I don't know. I'm just do thinking. You? I, I mean, you know, I, I, de- I definitely, I know 
there were some there were some grim grim ones but i'm i'm excited about age of adeline coming up it's too bad he was in the expendables that was sort of a sign that he's given up well <laughs> uh, yes 42 looking... didn't you like him in 42 uh, actually i take that back i did like him <laughs> in 42 I liked him in 42 more than I liked the movie. I think the movie just felt a little lackluster. But I did. I, I thought it was nice to see him actually doing something different. Uh, so I will give you that. But there was, it was after, because I actually, I liked Air Force One, right? And so there you go with the late 90s. And then Six Days, Seven Nights happened. And like dominoes, <laughs> every film he did was a piece of crap. Everything. Yeah. Six Days, Seven Nights, Random Hearts, What Lies Beneath, K-9, The Widowmaker, Hollywood Homicide. Uh, uh, firewall, God, and then Crystal Skull. Uh, oh, it's been a long slog. That was ten years I, of not good. I films. will say, actually, what lies beneath, as as uh, as stereotypical as a lot of it ended up being, I will say it was actually quite a fun thriller. So I will. Did you give... have fun with that one? I didn't have all that much fun with that. One. What I, I like about well, that one is that Clark Gregg wrote the screenplay, and I'm a big fan of Clark Gregg. Well, and I just I really, really, really love the uh, the filmmaking style that Zemeckis does in that film. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't remember it enough to comment on it. And oh well, it's pretty spectacular. I think um, K nineteen. That's when I feel like I, I should watch again, even though I don't think that I liked it. I just can't remember it very well. It's one but of I those want... where he was he was Russian. I know he had. Why that didn't they accent. get a Russian? <laughs> but there are great but... Russian actors. Right, I know. But Catherine Bigelow, I mean, we did our whole series on her, and I feel like I need to give it another shot. Just you don't. To, just I'm going to I'm gonna take that off your plate. You don't need to oh, do There right. are better movies. Okay, no. fine. But yeah, I he really hasn't done a whole lot. No. Poor guy. No. All right, fine. Maybe that's why he's grumpy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So back to this film. My goodness. What else do you want to talk about? Um, well, I already mentioned the editing. I, th- I think that the editing of this, I think that the editing was really uh, efficient. It was very, uh, it was done in a way where there was just no fluff. And I already have said that I liked that. I think Tim Squires uh, working with Gagan uh, did a very uh, brilliant job of the way they cut this together. I also really liked the way that uh, Robert Elswit shot it. I think it was... Um, in the style of that uh, that um, sparse documentary-ish sort of look, I think it comes across looking that sort of way, kind of that gritty, realistic sort of look. I, it works really well. They didn't play any games with this one like they did with um, with Traffic, where they kind of did different color coding for each of the different stories. So you could easily tell, oh, it's yellowish again, so it must be Mexico. Oh, it's bluish again, it must be Washington, D.C. They they made that very obvious in traffic. They didn't do that here. Um, and I personally didn't think they needed to. I found it pretty easy to follow as things jumped around. Um, but what do you think of the cinematography? I, I, you know, I agree with you on the cinematography. I thought it was beautiful, and I think the portrayal of the desert, particularly the Middle East stuff, I really enjoyed. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I really felt sort of like I was there. You know, particularly in Clooney's segments as he's, you know, working his way back into Beirut. I, I think they did a, a wonderful job of capturing sort of the compression of these sort of villages and the city. And then the incredible expanse of the desert when they're out there, um, you know, training the hawks or the the falcons. I thought that was just a a, a really 
Lovely. I'm I'm on the fence on the editing. I think you're right. I mean, in, in terms of, of what they did, uh, but the efficiency of it, I think, detracts from the ability to follow the film cleanly. And, and that may be a, a, a challenge of, that, that I had with it, uh, that it was almost too efficient um, and, and didn't have quite enough breathing room. And even at two hours and what, 10 minutes, um, you know, I, I may could have used the film to be a little longer to give me a little bit more breathing room to, to get the feel of each of these individual stories uh, more thoroughly. And I think that that's an editorial issue. Um, so, well, yeah, editorial and storytelling. I I think that uh, hand in hand, those are yeah. things that uh, you know. Like I said, I think it worked for me, but I agree that it I think did create a problem for a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people that are what less than you. Is that where we're going? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh man! Uh, goodness. All right. What else? Uh, Alexandra Desplat did the score for this. It's a very uh, uh, effective score in the context of the film. I don't know if it's the sort of score that you sit and listen to on its own, but I I think it works really well for the film. Yeah, I do too. I don't. It's not. It's one of those. It's not like I can't place it right now. Mm-hmm. I can't get it in my head. And usually, I feel like I can. You know, when I just look at a poster or something, I can kind of remember it. And I can't. I can't really place it right now. So I don't know yeah. if that what that means. Well, it's a, again, I think it's one of those ones that, that it, you hear it and it works, like I said, in context of the film. But yeah, outside of it, it's like, I can't, I can't place it either. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of music, I do find it interesting that this film actually starts with the, uh, the uh, call to prayer over the logo, which I, I think is uh, that, you know, something, I don't know. I don't know if there were back channel conversations about whether that is something that Warner Brothers was comfortable with or not, but I did find it interesting that, uh, you know, you start with that Islamic call to prayer under the logo in, you know, potentially a rather uh, divisive, politically, say. politically divisive <laughs> film. Yeah. yeah, although interestingly, I think you're, that, that's a good pull on the, talking about the credits. I think the credits are actually very effective. Uh, the opening credits, and par- particularly driven by the sound, but um, it leads us right into the world. You talk about world building. It leads us right into it very, very quickly um, as we get into this initial kind of arms deal, uh, which is a very striking opening as we as we see the arms deal, and it turns out it's an assassination. Um, right. Is very effective. Grim. Which, which really kind of frightens me because it's like they're doing this arms deal with this weapon, with like a anti anti uh, whatever it is weapon, that when they blow it up, it's like I, I don't know. It seems like that as part of the explosion. It seems like that would really make it a much bigger explosion. And maybe that's just me because I mean, but the but the one the uh, um, the terrorist who takes the uh, uh, who takes the other one right and Mohammed Sheikh Agiza right. Um, when he's talking to uh, his new recruits about the tip of it, he's like, "When this, when it hits, uh, it 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 shoots molten copper into the the core of the ship and melts everything inside." It's like that is one heck of an explosion, you yeah. know, the way that he was portraying it. And it's like that's the exact same weapon that that Clooney blew up in that vehicle. It seems like it would have just been much more of an intense explosion. And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I don't know my weapons. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on, Andy! You know the I I think they actually and and just a a slight pivot. I think you go to the actual explosion at the end that we don't see. Uh, I thought this was a really nice touch, as you know, right as the boat 
with the two, you know, the suicide bombing teens are on the boat, on their little speedboat, and they've got this missile or this weapon right at the at the head of the boat, stern, bow, bow of the boat. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of boating. <laughs> As do I. And they're... <laughs> They're heading you with your boating, me with straight, my straight into the starboard, starboard <laughs> side of the ship tanker of the tanker ship, <laughs> uh, and at, right at the moment of impact, they go to a straight white screen. And I thought that was a really effective way to to kind of visually demonstrate the explosion without having yeah. to worry about the effect. Yeah, and I, I agree, and I also like that it's. There's nothing, there's no point in the film that dwells on that moment. Like, you don't get news stories about that. You don't get follow up through the other political channels about that. You just know that it's a big mess for all the people that you've been watching over the course of the film because it's, as we've learned, it ties all of these webs together. And you know that that's going to be a big, uh, a big impact on all of their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So, yeah. That's what I have to say about that. Excellent. Yeah, good right. stuff. What What do you want to do now? Oh, let's talk numbers. How'd they do? They did pretty well. This, you know, it did pretty well. I mean, this is a film. It came out uh, right at the end of the year. It kind of uh, trying to get into the um, the Oscar race, and and it did a little bit. I you know we've already mentioned that Clooney won an Oscar for it, and it also was nominated for best original screenplay. Uh, it didn't win, but. Um, you know, because of kind of that period of time that it was released, it it had that kind of uh, momentum going for it. I mean, this it cost fifty million to make this film. This is a, a film that Gagan uh, was reported to uh, have asked Warner Brothers to have an unlimited budget to go and do research and an unlimited time frame to just go do research around the world, which sounds awfully nice. And I'm assuming that that's built into <laughs> that $50 million. But, you know, he went off for a couple of months with Bob Bear and traveled. I mean, he he actually went through a situation like what Clooney goes through uh, to meet the head of the Hezbollah, where he's driving and they they stop and they put him in another car and put a, a bag over his head and all this. Yeah rather intense stuff that Gagan went through to research this film. Uh, really interesting stories. There's a, a fantastic um, podcast on uh, uh, Jeff Goldsmith back when he was with Creative Screenwriting where uh, he talks about uh, some of his experiences, and it's just it's rather terrifying. But, um, yeah, but $50 million is what the film cost. They had another $22 million to market it. Um, so all told, it was uh, $72 million in today's dollars. That's about $85.7 million. And uh, then domestically, it ended up earning about fifty point eight million, and internationally about forty three million. So it ended up earning adjusted about one hundred and eleven point eight million dollars. So it came out ahead. Um, adjusted profit per finished minute was about two hundred and seven point five thousand dollars. So it's not at the top of our heap for sure, but for a you know political complicated film, I'd say it did pretty good for itself. I yeah, I think it did. That is actually that's more than I expected. Yeah. More dollars than I expected. I would have lost that bet. <laughs> uh I say we rank it. Oh god. All right, How are we gonna do this? <laughs> Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can see our stack ranking of our all the films that we've talked about on this very show. And let's see, is this one gonna break? I don't know. You're pretty excited about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say seventy-five. 
Okay. Well, let's see where it goes. I think it's. I think just because we're going to be playing so many of the odds, yeah, I know you're going to tr- lose some. It'll be a tricky one to see. We'll <laughs> see. All right. Well, let's start with uh, Syriana. Oh, there's some Clooney on Clooney action here. Syriana <laughs> or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, I would say Syriana, but I'm going to give you Oh Brother because it certainly is an easier film to watch. <laughs> you it's, know, it's... I know you're going to want me to give up something big later. <laughs> I know you're stacking this one, you big dummy. <laughs> We'll He's see. Syriana, Syriana or The Sandlot? I would say Syriana. Oh, God, I would say Syriana. Okay. And I, well, and I liked The Sandlot, but you're right. I'm going to give you Syriana I, on this one. Syriana or Pale Rider? Pale Rider. I would say Syriana on this one. Okay. Uh, how much would you say Syriana? What do you think about this? Syriana. I mean, as opposed to, to Rock, Paper, Scissors as a first try, is this 1 to 10 thing? Are you... One being all the way yours, ten being all the way mine. I mean, I really enjoy Pale Rider. I think it's a strong film, but there, like, I would much rather watch the Outlaw Josie Wales of uh, of Eastwood's uh, westerns. Um, Pale Rider is one I do enjoy, but it's not one I would return to as often. Syriana, I find a much more engrossing story. I enjoy the political context of it. I l- enjoy the the. Uh, uh, the globe-trotting um, aspect of the film and how it really feels uh, like a very interesting look at so many things going on in our world and how everything's interconnected. I'm going to give this one to you because my you have such a well-thought-out uh, case, and my case is I would pick Pale Rider because I don't want to watch Syriana. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Which I don't... I even admit that doesn't hold up. <laughs> it's pretty funny though <laughs> the comedy element goes to you though goes straight to I'll me give you that. All, right. all right syriana or when harry met sally when harry met sally i'll say when harry met sally oh look at that look at that i agree syriana or the maltese falcon mm. i'm gonna say the maltese falcon i actually am too <gasps> something about the i i know i but you know it's a classic oh it's a classic all right Syriana or Driving Miss Daisy? Driving Miss Daisy. And I would say Syriana. Mm. Now, see, I would say Driving Miss Daisy because of, strictly because of the performances. Uh, I really, really enjoy the sort of intimacy of their relationship and uh, what this what the film represents as a, as a cultural statement of the time. I thought it was just a delightful um, adaptation. Hmm. And the it it absolutely destroys Syriana on the complexity simplicity sta- scale. Destroys it's crushing. <laughs> oh, that's pretty true. Yeah, very big extremes here <laughs> between <laughs> complexity and simplicity. Are we going to need to uh, rock paper? This no, no, one? no. I, I'm going to give you Driving Miss Daisy because I think you're right. The the power that comes through in that film because of the uh, development of those two characters, I think, is pretty powerful. I would still pick Syriana, but I'm going to give you Driving Miss Daisy because you sold me on it. You're a generous man. I'm a giver. You're a giver. Syriana or 500 Days of Summer? Sort of curious where you're going to land on this. I am actually going to go 500 Days of Summer huh. because I find the... Uh, just everything about it so refreshing and invigorating 
in the storytelling style that they went with to tell that story. It's it's really one of the most magical romantic comedies I've seen. And I'm going to say 500 Days of Summer because singing in the park. <laughs> with a little animated bird on his shoulder. <laughs> oh, dear. Syriana or Field of Dreams? Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> this is the worst choice ever. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. That is terrible. Why, God, do you do this to me? <laughs> um, oh, man. Oh, for crying out loud. I'm going to say Field of Dreams because uh, my aunt loved for the this. film. <laughs> I believe this is the one where we're going to split the other way. <laughs> Excellent. You're going to go with Siriana, huh? I'm going to go with Siriana because no Kevin Costner. <laughs> because oh, if it, okay. it turns out if you build it, they don't always come. That is funny. <laughs> Sometimes Siriana, they just blow stuff up. Although Siriana does have William Hurt, who I, I sometimes find to be my Kevin Costner. <laughs> you take that back. It's true. It is true. Oh, I just picked my guilty pleasure. Oh, oh, goody. Twice. Uh, <laughs> what could that be? What are you going right, to What are you gonna, gonna do here? I'm going to go with Siriana. All right. And that puts it at 106 out of 172. <laughs> <laughs> <the> top 75. <laughs> Still, it's probably in good company, right? What's right around 100 right now? I mean, from 100, Midnight Run, the Maltese Falcon. Uh, what is this? Indiana Jones and... Uh, the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, Driving Miss Daisy, 500 Days of Summer, Summer, Syriana, Field of Dreams, Lady Killers, Pale Rider, Fistful of Dollars. So it's it's in good company there. Yeah, it's in good company. Fine company. All right. Like I always say, we've talked about a lot of really good movies. We really have, except for one that's terrible. <laughs> yes. um, hey, can I have a plug? Oh, sure. I have a plug for somebody else. Mm. Uh, have you, uh, do you remember this uh, fellow named uh, Joel Micah Harris? I do. Joel I do. Harris. He's, a, he's a, you may have, you may have seen the work of uh, Joel Micah. You may have worn the work of Joel Micah Harris <laughs> on the hit 2014 commemorative Next Real t-shirt. Uh, he did the illustration on that shirt. And Joel Harris and his friend uh, Adam Lanter have a podcast now. They've oh. started a podcast and I'm plugging it because I love the concept of it. Uh, and they are they're very intelligent pop ch- pop culture nerds. It is called If You Like, and it is available at the If You Like podcast, or you can search for it in uh, iTunes, and they only have three episodes out. Uh, the whole concept behind If You Like is uh, they call themselves the human recommendation engine. So they take a, a, some property, whether it's a, a book or a movie or a TV show, and they say, you know, if you like this, here are like six other things that you probably haven't heard of but would also like and why. And I just love that concept. So I have listened to the first three they did, if you like Tombstone, if you like The Hunger Games, and if you like The Walking Dead. And the next three episodes coming up, they've got Breaking Bad, Shawshank Redemption, and Cabin in the Woods. And those are have not been released yet, but they're on the way. And uh, I, they're just getting, they're getting better. They're, they've got new mics coming in. They're doing new sound stuff. It's, it's, uh, but it's a very clever concept, and I really like how they, uh, how they put it together. So congratulations to Joel and Adam, and uh, best of luck on their show uh, because it's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So it's uh, if you like podcast. 
go go check that out. Nice, nice. Tell him the I'll next will sent you. There you go. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think that's all I have to say. I gotta go to bed. All right, I'm gonna go uh, you know, convert with some spies. My uh, my review is very brief. I, I picked a five star review, and there's actually plenty of glowing reviews that uh, that people have. Uh, this is a funny movie, though. You look at the reviews. There's a lot of really brief reviews, both one star, five star, kind of the whole gamut. They're very brief. And this was I, I just don't know what David completely means, but he gave it five stars. He said it was okay and on time. <laughs> what? What is that? <laughs> Thank you, David. Wow. Uh, on time. Not quite sure what that means. I don't know what that uh, means at all. Um... <laughs> like the shipping was on time? Like he ordered a DVD and it came on time? Maybe. Wow. Maybe. Oh, yeah, I don't know. But uh, he gave it five stars. Well, and he said it was okay. <laughs> I I have a one star. And uh, this is from a fellow in uh, my own uh, uh, fair hometown, Portland, Oregon, from this time last year, February 22nd, 2014. It says, Wow. What a mess. This thing is a colossal failure, a tremendously ambitious enterprise that falls flat on its face. The fault, I think, lies in the direction. The disparate elements of the story are presented in such a scattershot fashion that it's virtually impossible to follow. What was apparently intended to be arty, multi-sided portrait of the nature of the world oil industry and its impact on people throughout the world turns into a half-assed mishmash of spy melodrama, tale of political intrigue and action thriller. I suppose the movie was deliberately constructed to be hard to follow, presumably to draw the audience in and focus on the message, which seems to be that the world's hunger for oil is corroding the world from top to bottom. All well and good, but when every scene leaves you scratching your head as to what the hell just happened and why, you begin to suspect that the fault is not your own lack of (laughs) perspicuity, but the director's inability to master the threads of his narrative. You wow, about, you did you like a real that? one. I did. You Do you know what? Because I've done really, really crappy ones for the last, like, ever. <laughs> I thought, this one actually, this is one that isn't don't bother or terrible or bleh. <laughs> or it was okay it and was, on time. It was okay and on time. But it actually, it represents uh, sort of what I feel, except, uh, you know, with the exception of the, you know, last 20 minutes. There you go. So way to go, fellow Portlandian. You wrote that, didn't you? <laughs> Way to go, me. I mean, what? (laughs) I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 